The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Because we're always looking for something that can help the remaining 37 million American smokers to quit. What we know from the data is that most e-cigarette users are not completely switching to e-cigarettes. About 60% of e-cigarette users are also continuing to smoke cigarettes. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's article is Prevalence and Distribution of E-Cigarette Use Among U.S. Adults Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System 2016 from the October 2, 2018 Annals of Internal Medicine. This is just one of a series of articles that discuss e-cigarettes in the annals in the last six months. Our guest today is Dr. Nancy Rigotti, who is a noted general internist and tobacco researcher. She currently works at the Massachusetts General Hospital, where she's the Associate Chief for Academic Advancement in the Division of General Internal Medicine and the Director of the Office of Women's Careers at Mass General Hospital. She's been President of Society of General Internal Medicine and President of Society for Research in Nicotine and Tobacco. She's been on many national and international committees, most recently the 2018 National Academy of Science Committee examining the health effects of electronic cigarettes. She's written editorials about this subject, and she explains the problem very clearly and very completely in this podcast. The article and the editorial you wrote were fascinating, as are several other articles in the annals in 2018 about e-cigarettes. Being an older person, I've run into very few people who use e-cigarettes, and I really don't get it. So I was wondering if you could sort of put this whole development of e-cigarettes and the latest excitement with FDA into some context and sort of tell me and my colleagues who are listening what this e-cigarette vaping thing is all about. Well, it's fascinating, actually, because e-cigarettes are essentially nicotine delivery devices that kind of came on the market as consumer products about a decade ago, out of nowhere, and they appeared to be popular. They never went through the FDA and got approval as medicines, but what they are is these devices that heat up a liquid that contains nicotine, some kind of diluent, usually propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin, and then usually some flavors. And the device heats it up. There's a battery that heats it up, and then it creates an aerosol that a person inhales. And so it's basically delivering nicotine into the mouth, throat, and perhaps down into the lungs. So that's what the devices are. Now, they should be safer than cigarettes, which is why they're exciting, because they don't burn any tobacco. And most of the serious health problems from smoking is actually from the products of combustion. It's not from the nicotine, something that not all doctors know, and certainly not all patients know, that the nicotine is what keeps people smoking, but it's not really what kills people. 
So the idea is maybe we have a nicotine delivery device that is more popular and easier to get people to use than nicotine replacement products, which we've had for decades or two, but I'm sure you know can sometimes be a hard sell with patients. And so people were buying these things without anybody pushing them to do so. So we thought, well, maybe they'll help people to quit. If as long as they're as good as the products we have, or even if they're not quite as good, if they appeal to more people who would not use the other products that we have or otherwise wouldn't try to quit or feel that they couldn't, then they could be really helpful. People could switch to something which is essentially harm reduction, or they might switch and then quit the e-cigarettes and become not only combustion cigarette-free, but nicotine-free. So that's very exciting because we're always looking for something that can help the remaining 37 million American smokers to quit. So that's the good news, and that's the potential benefit. But we have to think about there could be some problems, and the potential problems are two. One is we really don't know what are the health consequences of inhaling this vapor for many years. It seems unlikely that it's harmful for a short period, but if somebody switches over to e-cigarettes and uses them for decades instead of smoking, what will that mean? Will that harm them? Probably a lot less than continuing to smoke, but what will it do? What does it mean to inhale propylene glycol or these flavorants for a long time? We really have no idea because there are no models. People haven't been doing that. So that's one concern is that we just need to be looking carefully for potentially long-term side effects. So far, we haven't identified any serious concerns, but these are relatively new products. The second concern is that just as these things appeal to adults, they also can appeal to kids. And there's been a lot of concern that what might happen is that these products, which quite frankly have been often marketed as very sexy devices, essentially they've been marketed to consumers in the same way that tobacco companies marketed cigarettes to kids. Same ideas of selling sex and good-looking people and that sort of thing. And so the concern was that these are going to become attractive to kids, maybe more attractive to kids that might otherwise not have been smokers. The kids will start using them. They'll get addicted to nicotine. They'll essentially be a gateway. The kids will eventually switch over to conventional cigarettes, and then we'll have a new generation of smokers that we wouldn't otherwise have had. So the net benefit is going to be how good are these products at helping people to quit smoking and how many people do they help to quit smoking versus how many kids start to smoke and then are there any long-term health benefits. It's sort of figuring out that equation is really where we are right now. So that's where we were essentially a year ago when the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine put out a report that summarized the evidence we had as of then. And I had the opportunity to be one of the members of the committee that put out that report. And we essentially said what I've just told you. We did a modeling exercise that said that if given what we knew about e-cigarettes at that time and projecting forward to 2030 and then to 2070, it looked like there was going to be a net benefit in terms of lives lost or saved, that there a lot of lives would be saved by having these products available. So that's where we were about even six months ago. And then what happened is this Juul phenomenon came along. And Juul is essentially a better product. Somebody came up with a better mousetrap. And it's better in a couple of ways. One is technically it's better because it uses nicotine salts instead of liquid nicotine. And so the way it works is it's easier to inhale a higher dose of nicotine comfortably by using the nicotine salt. 
And so it delivers more nicotine faster to the user. And so it's more satisfying to somebody who's trying to replicate the experience of smoking. The second is, it's this cool device. It's kind of like the iPhone of e-cigarettes. It looks like a thumb drive. It plugs in. You can charge it on your computer. It's just sleek and neat. And it's small and it's easily hidden. And so all of these things made it attractive to kids. And then the third thing that probably caused all of this is that, so this was a new product and it was made and sold in the U.S. So this is something that we've seen. It came on the market in about 2017 or so, and it has become the leading e-cigarette product sold now. The other thing that the Juul company did, either maybe because they didn't know better, maybe on purpose, who knows, is that they marketed this in ways that were attractive to kids. They used social media in the most sophisticated ways. And as a result, it became the thing, a very popular thing among teenagers. There was lots of media about it. There were lots of concerns. Certainly, I was getting calls from teachers and principals saying, what are we going to do about this? And so it looked like kids were taking it up in a way that they weren't taking up the earlier versions of e-cigarettes. And so everybody got really concerned about it. And then back in September, the FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, came out with an announcement essentially saying that they were looking at the data from the National Youth Tobacco Survey from 2018. And what they had seen was an increase in high school students' use of e-cigarettes and a dramatic increase. They didn't produce the data. They just said they were still cleaning it. But they said there was this increase. They also said that they had sent young people out to try to buy the e-cigarettes illegally under the age of 18 and found that lots of people were selling to them. And so he really came out and said, this is a problem. He said, this is a public health emergency and that we need to do something about it. And he gave this company 60 days to do something about it. And so that 60 days passed about last week. And so in the meantime, there was a lot of negotiation. He basically said to the companies, you have to figure out how not to sell these to kids. Or we might, you know, start restricting what you're able to do. And so the company went back and forth, I understand. But what has happened is that the FDA has said that they are not going to allow the e-cigarettes with flavorings. And the flavorings seem to be an important part of why kids are interested in them and why they take them up but also maybe part of what makes them attractive to adults who would use them to quit. So flavorings is a big question. But what he did is he said, look, we're going to take out what are called brick-and-mortar stores, gas stations, retail stores. They cannot sell flavored e-cigarettes anymore. You can get flavorings by the Internet, but the way they're going to do it is they're going to put in much tighter controls on who is able to order through the Internet, try to keep kids from being able to order. Apparently, they're going to use some fancy technologies. So that's what he's done. And at the same time, the company, Juul, seems to have really kind of come around and they've tried to recast themselves as, we want to be an e-cigarette that is going to help people quit smoking. They said they have pulled all their social media marketing. They themselves preemptively, the day before this came out, said they would stop selling their flavored e-cigarettes to kids in retail stores and that they would tighten the restrictions on the internet marketing. So that's kind of where we are right now. Things have changed, and that's great. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that e-cigarette use has gone up in kids. There's no question. Whether that is going to lead to an increase in cigarette smoking, I'm not sure, because it looks like anecdotally, again, uh, we don't have the national data. It hasn't come out yet. But it looks like it may be the kids who are picking this up are kids who would not otherwise even consider smoking a cigarette. 
And if you think about it, the Juul is kind of this cool product. It doesn't make smelly smoke. It doesn't make you smell bad. It's, you know, why would you use a cigarette when you could use a Juul for the rest of your life? As one article in the New York Times said something about the Juul companies got customers for life now. So we don't know what's going to happen to the kids who are using Juul. Some of them are probably going to try to quit their Juuls, and how they're going to do that is a question. But we don't know whether or not the current increase in Juuls is going to lead to an increase in smoking among young people. But clearly, it's not a good idea to have kids using nicotine if they don't need to, and there's no reason that they need to. So we'll have to see what happens with these new restrictions. We're about to find out. At the same time, what the commissioner said is something about how in order to narrow the on-ramp to nicotine addiction, we maybe have to narrow the off-ramp as well, the off-ramp being cessation. And so the concern has been that if you make these products, especially the flavored products, harder to get, that they'll maybe be less attractive to the adults. And so they won't be taken up by as many adults for quitting. And we don't know if that's going to be the case. The studies have made it clear that flavorings are really, especially the sweet flavorings, are very important to kids. But even when they look at adults, it turns out that flavorings might be important as well. We don't know for sure. So I guess we're going to find out. So that's kind of where we are. So let's look at both the article that your editorial is based on and the more recent more recent, by a month or two, article that came out recently looking at the epidemiology of e-cigarette use. And I found it fascinating to both see the maps of what states they're used in and what amounts. I was really surprised that California was the lowest. Maybe you can tell me why California, North Dakota, and South Dakota, and Maryland are the least use. And the other thing is the epidemiological characteristics of who's most likely to use it. And I thought the age differences were very striking also. Sure. So it's pretty clear that it's young people, the 18 to 24-year-olds and the even under 18s. But in this particular article, which looked at adults, the 18 to 24-year-olds are who are the ones who are most using it. But what that article showed us was that using it can mean many different things. They aren't necessarily using it every day the way that cigarette smokers might be smoking. The proportion is much lower of daily use. So essentially, these are products that are used by young people, more or less by white people. To some extent, there's a little bit of a socioeconomic gradient. It tends to be more towards the richer people, not the poorer people, which is the opposite for cigarettes. And then there are other characteristics of LGBT people are more likely to be using these products, but they're also more likely to be smokers. So those are some of the factors that we're starting to see. We had done a paper earlier this year showing that even patients with chronic diseases are just as likely to be using e-cigarettes or more likely to be using e-cigarettes than patients that don't have chronic diseases, which was a question I was interested in because I was wondering how much internists like myself would be seeing these people versus it was just a thing for healthy younger people. But our data told us that we're going to see plenty of it. So in your own practice, and I know you've done a variety of different ways to help people stop smoking, what's your anecdotal experience of e-cigarettes in smokers who really want to quit and have had a hard time quitting? Well, I can tell you what I've heard from a lot of people, and as well as myself, which is that there's a lot of interest. There's always a lot of interest in what's the next new thing that might help us help me quit smoking, but there's been a lot of interest. And so docs are really not so clear on what they should be saying. I think that that's really a common question that I get. 
And I've certainly had the experience that people will say that they've been able to switch off. Sometimes they're using e-cigarettes long-term. Sometimes they're eventually getting off the e-cigarettes, but there's a lot of interest in using them. What we know from the data is that most e-cigarette users, however, are not completely switching to e-cigarettes. About 60% of e-cigarette users are also continuing to smoke cigarettes. And so you have to wonder how much harm reduction is that really if they're still being exposed to combustible tobacco smoke? Probably some, but probably not as much as they think. And the data that we had in our report showed that reducing while continuing to smoke doesn't reduce your exposure to the harmful chemicals in cigarette smoke nearly as much as completely switching over. So I think that one thing that might be important for listeners to know is that is to encourage people if they're going to switch over to using e-cigarettes to use them to switch completely and not to just use them intermittently. I still say to the patients that, and I think this is really the right thing to say, is that we have FDA-approved smoking station medications that we know are safe and effective. We should be using them first. Our best two products are either using nicotine replacement in combination patch plus some oral form or varenicline. And those are the two best products that we have. So I still think that's where we should start and encourage people to use those first. But when those fail, that's where physicians differ. And I think all physicians have to make their own mind up about this because we don't know for sure. And that is whether you recommend it, whether you at least don't discourage it, and what you say. But what I would say is I don't aggressively encourage it, but I certainly don't discourage it. And I do say if you're going to use these, switch over completely because I think that that's an important message. And I also say I want you to be off of cigarettes. And if this works for you, then use it as long as you need to until you're sure you can stay off cigarettes. But once that passes, and that may pass, you might want to think about eventually having a plan to quit the e-cigarettes too, because we don't really know how harmful they are long term. Just one more question that came up as I was talking about this with my house staff team today. Nicotine in and of itself does have one very interesting side effect, a very tragic side effect, thromboangitis obliterans or Berger's disease, which I have seen before. And I know that it's from the nicotine, not from the other products of the cigarette. Have there been any reports of thromboangitis obliterans from e-cigarettes? And what is the equivalent nicotine load of someone who's using e-cigarettes regularly compared to traditional cigarettes? Well, I have not seen any reports of thrombophlebitis obliterans in the literature yet. I imagine that it will be seen because it's, as you say, because it's related to nicotine. In terms of the equivalent doses, we know that how much nicotine you get out of an e-cigarette depends a lot on which e-cigarette you're using and how experienced you are as a user. The ones which we call cigalikes, the ones which look just like cigarettes, and are sold widely in lots of stores, those you don't get very much nicotine from. But some of the bigger ones that have the bigger batteries and stronger batteries allows for more nicotine to get aerosolized, that they can deliver more nicotine. And then with jewels, I'm not hawking jewels here, but what we do know is that the amount of nicotine that's in one of the pod cartridges that you put in to use it is thought to be at roughly one cigarette pack, which is 20 cigarettes. Wow, that's amazing. So if people were doing two or three of those a day, it'd be like back in the old days when we used to see people who smoked two or three packs a day. Yep, 
which we hardly ever see today. Well, Nancy, I think you've done a wonderful job of outlining where we stand with these cigarettes. They obviously have some potential advantages. They certainly have some potential disadvantages. We don't know what's going to happen to the adolescents who start using this without being smokers. We hope they don't become smokers. We don't have any good data on that, do we? We have some data that are suggesting that if you compare non-smoking kids who do or don't use e-cigarettes, they're more likely to later on pick up a cigarette. Whether they're going to continue to use that cigarette and become a regular smoker, which is what we ultimately care about, is not yet really clear, although there's a lot of controversy and differences of opinion about it. So it does give us a little angst to think about people getting addicted to nicotine and where that might take them. I think that you've really done a wonderful job of getting all of us up to date. It sounds like that in our regular internal medicine clinics, when we have people in the 30s, 40s, 50s who are trying to stop smoking and are not really interested in what might be better options, that this could be a reasonable option in some people, but we're really not excited at all about people just using this just because it's, quote, sexy in 2018. Well, thanks a lot, and I really appreciate it, and I know that our listeners will be much more educated about the entire topic. So thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, well, thanks, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. Dr. Gotti did a wonderful job of explaining the potential benefits of electronic cigarettes and the potential hazards of electronic cigarettes. Like many topics in medicine, this is a very complex issue, and she has clearly laid out the hopes of electronic cigarettes and the worries of electronic cigarettes. On the hope side, this does help some people stop smoking, and even if they were addicted to electronic cigarettes, they'll have less health side effects than they will from smoking cigarettes. On the negative side, many people use electronic cigarettes in addition to continuing to smoke, And electronic cigarettes have become a gateway for some people to get involved with nicotine. Unfortunately, this has occurred predominantly in adolescents and young adults. This is an important public health issue and also important issue for all of us to address in our patients. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and have learned something about this important topic. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.